I want to uh, draw your attention to this hourglass. And uh, you, can, you can look at this. It's, uh, I'll flip it here. And it takes about an hour for all of the sand to run out. So you're hoping that there's going to be a lot of sand left by the time you're finished. We'll see how it goes, hopefully. Uh, but we'll come back to this hourglass uh, in a moment. Um, you're probably all familiar with a movie plot that goes something like this. Parents go away for the weekend and the teenager decides to throw some crazy party. Uh, young people are there drinking drugs, all sorts of mayhem. Meanwhile, while the parents are gone, there is a mishap and they decide they're going to have to come back early. And they come back and there are cars parked everywhere. Loud music is blaring from the house. They go into the house and they see drinking and drugs and all sorts of other things. And their heart begins to beat 100 miles an hour. Their eyes are this big. Their face is tense. And they are looking for that teenager. Where is that son or daughter? Oh, there's fixing to be accountability. There is going to be a reckoning. That's, that's what we see. There's going to be a reckoning. Well, in this morning's passage, Peter is going to encourage us not to be that teenager. He's going to tell us that Christ is coming soon, and we must be prepared for his return. So how do we live wisely in view of the reality that Christ will be coming? Those are the things that we'll think about this morning as we look in 1 Peter chapter 4. Now, Peter, of course, was one of the apostles, really the lead among the apostles. He's writing to Christians in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey who were being persecuted for their faith. They were facing a lot of suffering. Let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding. Because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin in order to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. What does this passage teach us? With the end in view, live carefully as the people of God. This morning, I hope to encourage you 
to live ready, to be prepared for the return of Christ. We'll talk about five ways that you can do that, and we'll wrap up by thinking about how we need to respond to the Word of God, what changes we need to make. So how can you live carefully with the end in view? Well, first, arm yourself with the mind of Christ. Look in verse 1. Peter reminds these believers of, of Christ's suffering and sacrifice. Peter says, since Christ endured so much, look, look at the way he handled that and have that same attitude. Be willing to walk through suffering as Christ walked through suffering. Notice that Peter uses the term arm. This is a military term, a, a term for battle. Why does Peter use that kind of of terminology. This is the reason, because the Christian life, this side of heaven, is a battle. It's war. To walk faithfully with Christ is war, and we must have the right mindset as believers. Peter, Peter explains that the one who suffers more clearly recognizes the foolishness and short-sightedness of sin. So as believers look to Christ in the face of suffering, our perspective has changed. It might be fair to say that sin loses some of its sweetness in light of pain. You see, as, as we look to Christ and we adopt His attitude in the face of suffering, we long to live more and more according to the will of God, not according to, to foolish, fickle, sinful human desire. In verse 3, to, uh, verse 3, Peter reminds these believers not to follow the ways of the surrounding culture. In the first century and in the 21st century, non-Christians are often given over to their sin, living in unrestrained behavior. Peter offers here a picture of drunken parties with all kinds of filthy behavior. And Peter says to these brothers and sisters, there's going to be a temptation to follow right along with them. But don't give in to it. Don't go there. In verse 5, these non-Christians slander the believers for their way of life. They, they make fun of them. But Peter says that one day, those who slander Christians are going to stand before God. They are going to face judgment. And on that day, all of their words that were filled with making fun of and criticizing believers, that's all going to be silenced, and he alone will have the last word. They will face him at judgment. In verse 6, Peter speaks of people who heard the gospel preached and responded to Christ while they were alive, but have since passed away. These believers were judged in the flesh. That is to say, they faced death. But they are alive in the Spirit, Peter says, like God. That they're with God. They're in the Spirit now. These people had believed the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that when God saw us in our sin and brokenness, He didn't just leave us there. He sent His Son, Jesus, to this earth who lived a perfect life. He was nailed to the cross, He was buried, and He was raised from the dead, proving that He was who He said He was. And when we repent or turn away from our sin and believe in Jesus, God does a miracle. He takes all of, our, all of our grime and sin and he places it on Jesus. And he takes the perfect holiness of Christ and he gives it to us. And now we can be in a right standing with the God who's holy, able to recover and pursue his design for our lives. Now some have suggested that this verse 
means that people will have a post-mortem or after-death opportunity to trust Christ. But is that what Peter's saying? You see, a key principle in interpreting Scripture is that when you're not sure about a Scripture, you should look for other Scriptures that deal with that same issue. Scripture should be interpreted in light of Scripture. Well, what else does Scripture say about judgment? Obviously, this morning, we don't have time to, to survey all of that, but let me highlight one verse that brings some clarity. Hebrews nine twenty seven says, It is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, to face judgment. You see, the scriptures are clear. There will be no after-death opportunity to trust Christ. If you would turn to Christ, the time is now. You must believe now. That's what the, that's what the scriptures teach. That's what, that's what Peter is warning. Now, if you want to learn a, a new language, there are various strategies for, for doing so. One is the traditional approach. You go to a classroom, you have an instructor, you have a textbook, and you spend hours and hours and hours in memory work and and practice. Another approach is immersion. You go to live for a period of time uh, among native speakers of that language, and and you begin to sort of pick up the language. Obviously, uh, many suggest that that an approach that combines both is, is the strongest approach. What Peter is saying to these believers is that he wants us to be immersed in the ways of Christ. He wants us to know Christ, to learn Christ, to think like Christ, to have Christ's attitude, to become students of Jesus. To become students of Jesus, where do we look? We look in the Word. We read the Word. We study the teachings of Scripture. We see what Jesus taught. We look at the example that Jesus set. And as we do that, our mind and our thinking begins to be shaped. And suddenly, more and more, the Spirit changes us. And we become like Jesus. We have His attitude. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. Immerse yourself in Christ and who He is. How do we live this out? Well, keep your eyes on Jesus. Teenagers, Maybe your friends are living it up. They're going to parties. They're hanging out with the cool kids, and they make fun of you because of the way that you live, because you don't join in all of that. Listen, young people, do not, do not follow their ways. You keep looking to Jesus. That's what Peter's saying to you. Young adults, much of your generation views Orthodox Christianity as backwards or even worse. To believe in Jesus is to reveal your foolishness, perhaps your bigoted spirit and attitude, your intellectual weakness. You're holding to an outdated and oppressive system. Oh, young adults, don't fall in line with that, that, that scheme, that way of thinking. It's a trap. Keep looking to Jesus. Draw close to him. You see, the temptation to live like the world is fierce. Move in with your boyfriend or with your girlfriend. Hook up for the night. Go out and get buzzed. It's no big deal. Live as you want to live. But Peter's saying to these brothers and sisters, don't go there. You keep looking to Jesus. For those of you who are suffering, life is wearing on you. Day after day seems like nothing changes. You've prayed lots of prayers and it feels like they're unanswered. Perhaps you begin to wonder about God's love in the face of your suffering. 
But friend, keep looking to Jesus. He's proof that God loves you. He's proof that even through your suffering and even through the questions that God loves you so much that he would give his own son. Keep looking to Jesus. There's hope there. Yes, keep looking to him. So to live carefully with the end in view, arm yourself with the attitude of Christ. Second, you sound judgment and pray earnestly. Look in verse 7. Peter teaches that the end of all things is near. He, he doesn't mean that the end was going to come in a few weeks or a few months. It's been about 2,000 years since he wrote these words. So what does Peter mean? Well, it's important for us to remember that God experiences time differently than we do. 2 Peter 3.8 says that a thousand years is like a day to God. So his experience of time is not ours. So what's Peter up to? Peter is saying that it is in the ninth inning. We're living in the ninth inning of God's redemptive plan. What, what he means is that now that Christ has died on the cross and has been resurrected, we're in the final chapter of God's plan of redemption. We're moving toward the end of time. And Christ's return could come at any, at any moment. And because this is true, Peter issues two commands, both of which reiterate the same idea. He says, be alert, which means be sensible in how you live. Be sober-minded, that is to think clearly or to exercise sound judgment. So a Christian's actions and a Christian's thinking are marked by Scripture and, and wisdom and careful thought, not haste and foolishness. This kind of disciplined living and thinking well, that, that sets you up for the right mindset to be a person of prayer. And that's what he says. Spend time, focus on, on praying, not on sinful immorality and the kind of foolish living that those around you engage in. Now, as we think about Peter encouraging Christians to live wisely, we recognize that in view of the end times, believers throughout history have been tempted to live foolishly. Setting dates. Christ is going to come at such and such date. The date comes and the date goes. Uh, don't do that. that. That's the kind of foolish thinking that, that Peter's talking about here. Or the fellow who decides to quit his job, live off his retirement, and walk around the neighborhood wearing a sandwich board that says the end is near. No, that, that's not what Christ is calling us to. No, what, what's needed here is sound judgment. Good thinking. Also, we shouldn't be filled with anxiety. Oh no, it's the end of time. I'm scared and I'm worried. This is no time for panic. It's a time for, for sound thinking, sober-mindedness. So how do we avoid falling into the traps of foolishness and anxiety? Well, we pray and we look to God. We, we call out to Him, the one who gives peace, the one who can calm our hearts, the one who gives wisdom and helps us to think clearly. We pray and we trust him. We've watched in horror at the video of George Floyd being held down by a police officer uh, of, of his killing. We recognize that black lives matter. Our hearts are broken by the looting and the killing and the violent protests that, that we've seen. These protests that have taken the lives of many police officers and we recognize that blue lives matter. 
But that's not all. These violent protests have led to the deaths of others. And we want to say from a biblical perspective, all lives matter. Every life matters. You see, justice should be pursued in all of these circumstances. These rampages have harmed so many. This kind of of out-of-control anarchy is exactly opposite of what Peter is encouraging. This is not the way Christians behave. You see, Christians exercise sound judgment. There's restraint and there's care in how Christians respond even to injustice. Many of these believers were living in the face of injustice. Yes, this sound thinking calls us to, to lean into God, to be a people of prayer. How do we live this out? Rely on God daily through prayer and the study of his word. God's word will shape your thinking. He will change the way you think. He will help you to make sound decisions. He'll help you see things from a biblical perspective. And as you pray, and as you you talk to him, you find a peace there. You find a certain solitude in leaning into him. This will keep you from falling into the foolishness that we see all around us. So to live carefully with the end in view, arm yourself with the mind of Christ. Be careful, live carefully, and and be a person of prayer. Third, love one another relentlessly. Love one another relentlessly. In verse 8, Peter says, above all, maintain constant love. Notice that he says, above all. Why does he say that? Because love is critical in the family of God. It's critical. Notice that Peter expects every believer to be a part of a family of God. That's the expectation, that every Christian is a part of a family. And love should be of the utmost uh, importance among this family. What kind of love? Well, Peter says it plainly, constant love. It reminds me, for some of you who are older, of the old Duracell commercials that said, It keeps going and going and going. That's the kind of love we're to have for each other as as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Peter says here that love covers over a multitude of sin. He's, He's referring back to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, which says hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers all offenses. Peter says that love brings peace and unity, not conflict. For a church family to survive and be healthy, there must be a deep, devotion to loving one another. There's too many different opinions. There's too many different perspectives. When when you bring a a group together, how do we navigate all that? Well, what makes that possible is that we have a deep love for each other and we bear with each other. I can think of a mother I knew whose son had gotten into all kinds of trouble, went to prison for years and years Did this dear woman support his criminal activity? Not a chance. She was a godly woman. But did she love her boy? She loved him with all her heart. She loved him all along the way, even though he broke her heart on countless occasions. Her love for him never diminished. She maintained constant love. This is the kind of love that we're called to maintain for each other. Think about that. We're to maintain a constant love for each other. 
This kind of enduring love is critical in a church family. We will sin against each other. We're sinful people. We make mistakes just like we sin in our own families. And we have to say, hey, I'm sorry, I messed up. That happens in church life too. We're going to offend each other. We're going to hurt each other. We're sinful with our words. We can be selfish and cruel as, as brothers and sisters. And Peter calls us to love one another in the midst of that, to bear with each other. We must have an enduring love in the family of God. How do we live this out? We'll love others through misunderstandings and offenses. Instead of having a default position of becoming defensive or withdrawing, now have a default position that says, you know what, I'm going to keep on loving I'm going to keep on loving. I'm I'm not going to throw in the towel. That's the way the world lives. I'm a person of, of God. Christ has shown me love. I'm going to show others that kind of love. And so if you're offended in the midst of of your church family, if you can overlook it, great, do that. Bear with each other. If you can't, it's probably a good idea to sit down with that person and talk with them and say, "Hey, I'm th- this hurt me. Let's talk through this." In fact, the Bible gives instructions for how to carry that out in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. And if there's not receptivity, perhaps you may need to take along another believer. But in the midst of our offenses and our misunderstandings, what is critical to keep the wheels turning? It is love. Love is the grease that keeps the wheels from locking up and honestly that keeps us from grinding each other up. So to live carefully with the end in view, arm yourself with the mind of Christ. Exercise sound judgment and earnest prayer. Maintain love. Fourth, show hospitality to one another. In this time period, the importance of having a place to stay when you were traveling was, was, was um, definitely a, a need. There weren't holiday inns and other kinds of, of hotels all along the way. So so Peter's probably talking about that, but I think he's talking about more than that. You'll remember uh, in the days of the early church, there weren't church buildings to meet in. Most of the time, people were meeting in homes for worship and for fellowship. So here Peter is saying to these believers, show hospitality. Open up your homes and allow people to, to, to fellowship and to worship and do that without grumbling. Obviously, to open up your home is a sacrifice. And so, so Peter urges that kind of hospitality. Some of my greatest experiences through the years in the church have been, have been home groups where we've met together in homes with, with other believers, shared a meal together, studied the word together, prayed together. There's a deep fellowship that, that builds and is experienced in the midst of hospitality. So a key ingredient for the development of fellowship and discipleship in a church family will be this opening up of our lives and, and even our homes. Well, how do we live this out? Ask yourself this question. Do you open up your home and your life to other believers? Maybe invite guests to, to lunch or uh, over for, for dinner. Maybe open up your home for, for a Bible study, for, for a, a group to meet. Do you make space or time in your life to to mentor other people and to disciple them. Having that kind of an openness and a a warm hospitality, this is a critical aspect of the Christian life. It's one of the key ways that we disciple each other through opening up our lives. So to live carefully with the end and view, arm yourself 
with the mind of Christ. Exercise sound judgment and earnest prayer. Maintain constant love. Be hospitable. And fifth, deploy your gifts in serving each other. In verse 10, Peter teaches that every believer has been blessed with a spiritual gift. You may have more than one, but everybody has at least one. And he says we're to be stewards of these gifts of grace. What does it mean to be a steward? It means to take care of something. So the expectation is that we will take the gift that God has given and that we'll use it. We'll use it, and and the scriptures teach clearly that believers are to take their gifts and to use it in strengthening the church body so that the church becomes strong and effective. Now, Peter mentions two categories of spiritual gifts. First, gifts related to speaking. That is, gifts that that have teaching in view. There's all sorts of ways that the teaching can be in view, whether it's mentoring one-on-one, whether it's preaching, whether it's teaching a small group. All those kinds of things are in view here. And Peter says, when you teach, make sure that you are teaching in accord with the Word of God. Make sure that you're being faithful to the Scriptures. And then he speaks of gifts of service. And he says, when you, when you serve, and there's all kinds of ways folks can serve in the church. He says, serve in God's strength. Don't, don't serve in your own strength. Ultimately, the purpose of these gifts is that God might be glorified through Christ. And, and here, Peter just breaks into worship as he ponders the greatness and the majesty of God. He, he says he's worthy of all glory and all power. Ah, he rejoices in, in who God is. A couple of weeks ago, an F1 tornado blew through my hometown of Bowie up in north central Texas. Immediately following that, folks went into action. They began to clean the city up. They began to, to, to help each other. People were posting on Facebook, hey, if you need volunteers to come and cut the trees down in your yard and help you clean up, we're available. Let us know. And, and that was happening all over town. Southern Baptist disaster relief teams came and, and others came. It's been a beautiful example of what can happen when people take the strengths and the abilities that they have and they invest them for the good of others. And what Peter is saying is that a church is designed to work in the same way. A church is meant for every person who's a part of it to bring their gifting to strengthen the whole body. And so many churches, members expect pastors to do all of the work of ministry. A pastor has to be the one who makes the visit. A pastor has to be the one in attendance. He's got to be the one who's, who's praying. The reality is that in many churches, The pastors and a handful of volunteers do the vast majority of the work. But what's the result when we operate according to that model instead of a biblical model? Well, the result is burned out pastors and burned out volunteers. That's the result. You see, God had a reason for calling every member to invest. On the other hand, when when every member does use their giftings and their strengths to build up the church and to further the mission, a church is healthier. And instead of burning people out, people are uh, strengthened in their service. they, They find joy in their service instead of being worn out by their service in the Lord. Yes, when a church gets this vision and the folks jump in and pour their lives in ministry, oh, it's powerful. If unbelievers and believers can come together to clean up a small town after a tornado, how much more should the people of God come together and give their ability and strength that the mission of God might be fulfilled, that the love of Christ might be made known? 
How do we live this out? Well, use your spiritual gifting to serve in the body of Christ. So, so do you use your gifts? Do you serve? Are you helping fulfill the mission? If not, why not? If your health or circumstances keep you from, from doing that, then do what you can. Pray, write notes, make telephone calls, do whatever you're able to do. But everybody who's of sound mind can serve in, in one way or another. Yes, we must use our gifts. So you look at this hourglass, a good amount of this sand has gone into the bottom. It's a reminder that our time is limited. We don't know when Christ will return. We don't know when, when we will die and, and our lives will end. The question before us today is how are we going to live in the meantime? Time will run out for each one of us. How will we live? Peter wants us to understand the gravity of this. Our lives should be shaped and changed by this reality that Christ is coming soon. That we do not have unlimited time on this side of heaven. Will we live our lives as if Christ is coming back now, soon? Will we live our lives ready and wisely? Yes, live in a way that would bring Jesus great joy when he returns. Imagine the difference this, is, this would make in our own lives instead of playing around with sin. Oh, we're going to fight sin. Instead of making excuses for why we can't pray, for why we can't read the Bible, we're going to engage the Word of God and we're going to spend good time in prayer daily. Rather than disunity and fighting in the church, oh, there's relationships marked by sincere love. In place of selfishness, we see folks giving of their lives generously to one another. Instead of a church with a faithful few serving and, and getting worn down, We'll find a church full of people glorifying God together and that makes a stronger church and a church that's more effective in taking the gospel to the peoples of the world. Yes, with the end in view, brothers and sisters, let us live carefully as the people of God. If you're a Christian here today, are you living like the teenager in the movie that I described at the beginning? You're just living life how you want to live it. You're kind of pretending that he's not coming back, that you're not going to have to deal with that. If that's you, you're playing around in the world, the message to you is to call out to God and to say, God, change my heart. Help me to live ready. Give me grace to, to, to take a different path. Or maybe you haven't been loving other believers as you should. You've sort of been the source of, of strife and starting little fires here and there or kind of just trying to be negative, throwing in your little darts. Not in any way trying to edify or love or build up. It's time to repent. It's time to love genuinely. Maybe you need to forgive someone or make things right with someone. You need to maintain love. Maybe you need to begin using your gifts 
You've been attending church, but, but you don't serve. And it's time to begin using the gifts that he's given to you to help this church become healthier or stronger, to help us fulfill the mission that God has given us. Believers, ask the Lord for help to take that next step, whatever it is. In your heart, ask him to show you what that step is and then ask him for the grace to take that step. If you are here today and you don't know Jesus, I want to plead with you. You don't know how long you have. You're living under the assumption that your life is going to keep going, but friend, it will not. One day, could be today, I'm going to die. Christ is going to return, and you are too. Are you ready? How can you be ready? There's only one way to be ready. It's to say to Jesus, I'm sick of living life my way. I believe you died, that you were buried, and that you rose again, and I want to follow you. And when you call out to Jesus like that, the Bible says that God will save you, and he'll never let you go. So if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, I plead with you, turn to him and be saved. Have eternal life. Let's pray.